The following audio is from Fellowship Baptist Church in Nederland, Texas. Our mission, to make and mature disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Fellowship, visit fellowshiptx.org. All right, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2, back in verse 42 again. So I know we have lost an hour, and some of us are struggling right now. I can see it on your faces. Some of you are struggling. So for those of you who are not struggling, make sure that you watch that person next to you and give them a swift elbow in the ribs in case they start falling asleep, okay? Real quick, swift elbow, that'll wake them up, keep them awake, all right? I'll do my best to... uh, to be lively this morning, keep you going, all right? So Acts chapter 2, verse 42. This is the final week in our We Are Fellowship series, and I've really enjoyed this series. This passage in Acts chapter 2 is a wonderful passage where we get to see how church is really supposed to be done, right? We get to see what the early church looked like in its purest form, and hopefully, by God, we would look like that here at Fellowship, amen? So Acts chapter 2, Verse 42, let me do a quick review. Week one, Julian preached, and he focused on just the very beginning of that text where it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And so his point that week was that the church in its purest form should be rooted in God's word, that our foundation of who we are as a church, individually and corporately, should be the word of God. The word of God directs us, it instructs us, and we should be rooted in that. He said a few things. One, he said the word brings us together and gives us direction. The word brings us together, it's what unites us, and it gives us direction as a church. It tells us how we should do life, it tells us how we should do church, and so we should always go to it for answers. He said a few other things. He said, number one, the word is truth. The word is truth. It is not a truth, it is the truth. The word is truth. Number two, the word is complete. We don't need to add to it, we don't need to take away from it. It's complete the way it is because it is the very word of God. Number three, the word is living and has the power to change people's lives. Amen? We believe that this morning. That's why we gather together each week because we believe the word has power to change people's lives. And so that was week one. Week two, I spoke and we looked at the next part of that section where it says they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. And then we skipped down and it says, now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. And so that week we talked about the fact that we as a church should be living in Christ-centered community, that we should be living in a community that is centered around the person of Jesus Christ. And uh, we we, we talked about the fact that there's fruit in that. If we're really living in Christ-centered community, there'll be fruit of that. The fruit of that is that we'll be living in unity, We're not going to be bothered by little petty things because what unites us is far greater than what separates us. We talked about the fact that the fruit of that would, number two, be generosity, that we'd be willing to love and support one another financially and be willing to give and sacrifice in order that no one has a need. And then we talked about the fact that we would be faithful to meeting together and doing life together. And then last week, man, last week was powerful. How many of you were here last week? powerful sermon, amen? Julian did a phenomenal job unpacking that text. 
uh, where it says, everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. And so a few things that he said last week was God has always been in the business of bringing dead things back to life. And then he said we should believe and expect God to do the miraculous in people's lives. We should believe and trust that God has the ability to resurrect marriages, to bring freedom from addictions, to change hearts, because they were in all of the miraculous life change that was taking place around them. And so this week we're going to wrap this up in verse 47. And here's what it says. It says, enjoying the favor of all the people every day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Man, that's an encouraging text. Amen. They enjoyed the favor of all people, and every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. So there's, there's this result in making God's word our foundation, living in Christ-centered community, and believing and expecting for God to do the miraculous in people's lives. And the result of that, number one, is that the church will be attractive. The church will be attractive. I only have two points this morning, so roll with me. The church will be attractive. It says, enjoying the favor of all the people. So let me ask you this, in your own head, kind of answer this. What do you think made this church so attractive? What do you think made this church so attractive? Was it their building? I doubt it. They didn't have one. Was it their marketing skills? Man, I can't tell you because I'm in some of these like church Facebook groups and, and get, I get emails and stuff like that from different companies. There's, there's a million companies out there that want to help your church grow. And it's always about like, having a cool logo and your Facebook presence and, and, and how you do first impressions ministry and, and, and all these marketing skills. It wasn't their marketing. They weren't going to the Kinko's in ancient Jerusalem and printing out some flyers, I promise you. Peter didn't have a degree in graphic design. It wasn't their music. Their music isn't what attracted me. It wasn't their kids' program. It wasn't their youth program. What made this early church so attractive was the fact that people saw and experienced their radical transformation. Listen, we could, we could get people in here with cool marketing, with cool graphics, and none of that stuff is necessarily bad. But if that's our focus, we're missing the point. If that's how we think we're going to grow our church, we're missing the point because that's not what grows a church. What grows a church is when people in our community see a radical transformation in us, when they see that what happened to us was real, right? When they realize that the power of the Holy Spirit in someone's life is a real thing, that's attractive. They were different than everyone else around them, and that was evident, and their actions matched their beliefs. Their actions matched their beliefs. So um, I found this, this, this work that was written in the second century by a, a Greek philosopher by the name of Aristides. Aristides was a Greek philosopher, and he was employed by this Roman emperor because this Roman emperor at the time started getting really freaked out by this, this new Christian movement that was taking place. He started getting really worried because this thing was growing fast and things were changing rapidly, and so he started feeling, feeling a little bit threatened. So he hired this philosopher named Aristides, Aristides and, and he sends him into the church as a spy to come back and report to him what's going on with these people. And so this philosopher goes in there, encounters the church, and puts his faith and trust in Jesus Christ in the process. And so he writes this work back to the emperor, and, and it's a pretty long work, so I didn't 
bring it all with me because that would take us forever and it, you did lose an hour last night. But I did take a few paragraphs that I want to read to you. Here's what it says. Now the Christians, O king, by going about and seeking, have found the truth. For they know and believe in God, the maker of heaven and earth, for whom they have received those commandments which they have engraved on their minds, which they keep in the hope and expectation of the world to come, so that on this account they do not commit adultery nor fornication, they do not bear false witness nor covet what is not theirs, they honor father and mother, they do good to those who are their neighbors, and those who grieve them they comfort and make them their friends, and they do good to their enemies, and their wives, O king, are pure, and their daughters modest, and their men abstain from all impurity. They walk in all humility and kindness and falsehood is not found among them, and they love one another. And from the widows, they do not turn away their countenance, and they rescue the orphan, and he who has gives to him who has not, without grudging. And when they see the stranger, they bring him to their dwellings and rejoice over him as, as over a true brother. For they do not call brothers those who are after the flesh, but those who are in the spirit and in God. But when one of their poor passes away from the world and any of them sees him, then he provides for his burial according to his ability. And if they hear that any of their number is imprisoned or oppressed for the name of their Messiah, all of them provide for his needs. And if it is possible that he may be delivered, they deliver him. And if there is among them a man that is poor and needy, and they have not an abundance of necessities, they fast two or three days that they may supply the needy with their necessary food. And they observe the commandments of their Messiah. They live honestly and soberly as the Lord their God commanded them every morning and at all hours on account of the goodness of God toward them. They praise and laud him. When I read that, I see a church that's rooted in God's word. I see a church that's not just hearers of God's word, but they are doers of God's word. I see a church that is living in Christ-centered community. They're united, they're generous, and they're faithful. And I see a church that was actually changed forever by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let me ask you this. When you hear this account from Aristides on the early church, do you see fellowship? Do you see fellowship? When we look at some of these things, he says that the word of God was engraved on their minds. Do we know the word? Is it really our foundation? He says they don't commit adultery or fornication or bear false witness or covet what's not theirs. They comfort those who grieve them. The people that are annoying, they comfort them instead of writing them off. They do good to their enemies. The men abstain from all impurity. At the end, if there's among them a man that is poor and needy, they have not an abundance of nests, they fast for two, they stop eating just so they can supply for those in need. When we hear that, do we, hear, do we see fellowship? Because that's what church should be in its purest form. In a world of the Facebook facade, People are hungry for something real. They're tired of seeing the church say one thing 
and live a total different way. If we as the church would rise up and show our community a real transformation, it would radically change Southeast Texas as we know it. If we as fellowship started living like we were really transformed by the gospel, it would radically change Southeast Texas as we know it. Why? Because radical transformation is attractive. Radical transformation is attractive. People are hurting. They're looking for answers. And they look to us for the answers. And when they see sometimes that the gospel hasn't changed us, they think that's not real. And they move on. It appears today that churches have more disdain with man than favor. Churches as a whole. And the indictment on us is that we're just hearers of the word and not doers. They call us hypocrites. Our divorce rates are the same. We watch the same junk on TV. Our men are enslaved to pornography. Our women are gossipers. We raise our children with the same priorities. We invest our energy and money in the same fleeting things in this world. So why would we be attractive? Why would we be attractive? We've become just hearers and not doers. It's time that we start showing the world around us that God is real and really has the power to transform us. That is what will be attractive. It's not how cool our logo is. It's not how awesome we are at marketing. It's being real and authentic in our faith outside of these walls. It's not just hearing the word of God, but living it around those that don't know him. It's time to be different. It's time to be real. And that will be attractive. It was attractive in the early church, and it'll be attractive today. So the church will be attractive. And then the second point is the church will be fruitful The church will be fruitful. It says, every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. If we're making God's word our foundation, living in Christ-centered community, and believing and expecting for God to do the miraculous in people's lives, we're going to be fruitful. We're going to be fruitful. What is the fruit, though? What is the fruit? What what, What do we view as a church? When we think of fruit, what do we think of? It's not attendance. Because, again, we can get a bunch of people in here and We just have a bunch of people in here. The fruit is disciples, people who are committed to following after Jesus, people who are giving their life to Jesus. The goal is not more attendance. The goal is more disciples. Uh, Several years ago, Becca and I decided we were going to, like, get crafty. And uh, I don't know, it was like Pinterest does that to people, right? And so we decided we were going to start planting this garden. Terrible decision. And... uh, and so we went, and, and it, it, it cost money. It was a lot of work. And, and I had to build these little wooden frame things, and we had to lay down the plastic, and then we had to get all this soil and then fertilize the soil and put all the right nutrients in the soil to, to match exactly what we were trying to plant. And then we had to plant the seeds, and then we had to keep the stupid dog out of it, and then we had to you know, get these things to help it grow right up, and, and then we still like, had nothing to show for it. <laughs> By the time it was all said and done, I think we had this little bitty bell pepper that was about that big. And I was like, all this work for nothing. Planting takes a lot of work. If you're a gardener, you know that. It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of intentionality. Right? If you know what you're planting, you have to be intentional about what kind of soil you're going to use, about uh, how you're going to, to take care of that plant and, and how much sunlight it's going to get, how much... Uh, watering it's going to get. You have to be really intentional. If we're going to be a fruitful church, it's going to require for us to be intentional. 
We're not just going to wake up one day and all of a sudden disciples are being made and hallelujah, Jesus, you did it. It's going to require for us to be intentional. And so it's going to require a few things. One, it's going to require a desire to plant. If we're going to be a fruitful church, we have to desire to plant. Matthew 9, Jesus is, is uh, looking at the crowds. It says, when he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. So Jesus looks out on this crowd of people, this massive crowd of people, and he has this burden because they're lost. They have, they're like sheep without a shepherd. They're lost. They have no hope. And he has this burden for them, and he feels compassion for them. Compassion for the lost is what leads us to desire to plant. Desire, compassion for the lost is what will lead us to desire to plant. Listen, the lost are not our enemies. Do you understand that? The lost is not your enemy. I feel like a lot of times Christians on, on social networks and stuff like that, they'll see this morally degraded society and they want to war against it. We're not called to war against this morally corrupt society. We're called to evangelize that society and that's not going to happen until you love them. Sometimes we value being right over being like Christ. Never use the Holy Spirit's work of sanctification in your life as a reason to be prideful. Listen, you were lost as lost can be before you knew Christ. And it's not by your own efforts that you came to know him and that you were sanctified. It is 100% by the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. It was grace that gave you that. So we should never look at a lost world that's morally corrupt and think judgment. We should look at a lost world and have compassion because they're lost. They're blind. They're like sheep without a shepherd. We know the shepherd. Amen? We know the shepherd. He's made an impact on our life. He's changed us. So let's point these people to the shepherd. God himself opened up your eyes. So never judge someone else for still being blind. Have compassion. Be burdened for the lost. Have a burden for the lost. So we have to have a desire to, to plant. Number two, we have to have a willingness to do the work. Right after Jesus said this, verse 37, he says, Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. And the harvest, there's a huge harvest out there. Southeast Texas is filled with lost people. Filled with lost people. But there's so few of laborers. There's so few people who are willing to step out of their comfort zone and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Fellowship is family. We've been celebrating that over the past four weeks. But adding to a family always requires work. I can speak on that firsthand. We have four kids at home, and uh, so we got, we got to number three, and, and we were done, like, like done. It was a four-year gap between two and three, and, and we had gotten out of, like, the diaper stuff. They were, like, able to, like, microwave their own corn dogs, and, and like, the things that you really, like, pray for and hope for as a parent, right? We weren't having to do anything with, like, potty stuff anymore, like wiping and all. That was done. And then we had another baby. 
And immediately I was like, what have we done? (laughs) And so then four months later, we find out we're going to have another baby. And so I got a picture of him. Davis is our, is our caboose. Yeah, he's cute there. Um, <laughs> I remember very clearly, I was sitting in my office. And I have, in my office, I have this TV that I use as a computer monitor because I'm going blind, I think. And uh, it's, I mean, it's a, just like a big TV that I use as a computer monitor. And on my computer, I get my text messages. They come to my computer. And so I'm sitting in the office one day, and it's me and Dalton Washburn. We're sharing an office, just working like a normal day, never suspecting anything like this. And, and, and I get a phone call from Becca, and she's, like, super upset about something. And I'm like, oh, man, I must not have done something. I don't know what I've done. And she's like, I can't even say it. I'm just going to send you a picture. And so then I'm like, oh, man, the kids did something bad. They have broke something or, or done something really bad. And so then on this giant screen pops up a positive pregnancy test. <laughs> and literally, this was my response. Oh, my goodness, what are we going to do? And listen, fellas, if your wife ever calls you and says you're pregnant, oh, my goodness, what are we going to do is not the appropriate response. But by the grace of God, God's provision in that moment, he had muted my phone somehow, and she did not hear that response. So immediately, I corrected it, and I was like, all right, baby, it's going to be okay. It's okay. We can handle this. We've done three. We can do another one. It'll be okay. Adding to our family a fourth was a lot of work. It's four years later, and I'm still wiping butts. Like, I've been doing this. For literally 11 years. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of financial investment. I've spent more money on my kids than I ever thought what I would have. I could have like the best awesome truck. I could have a cool deer. I could have all this stuff. But I have four kids and so I have nothing. I do good to have food whenever they're done eating. Adding to a family is a lot of work, right? You guys who have kids, you know that. Adding to your family requires a lot of work. It requires a lot of money. It requires a lot of intentionality to help raise them and grow them, right? You want your kids to grow up and be productive citizens and not live in your house past 20. That's my goal, 20. You don't want your kids, you you, you want to help your kids grow, and, and it requires a lot of stress, a lot of sacrifice, a lot of money, a lot of energy, a lot of work. But here's the deal. There's no joy like that adding to your family, right? Look at that. That's the cutest thing in the world, right? And, and I wouldn't give up Davis for nothing. Like, he brings so much joy to our life now. He's, he's like, rambunctious and, and, and energetic, and he tries to beat up his brothers who are, like, seven years older than him, and it's awesome, and he sort of kind of holds his own. And, and, and so it's, it's just a lot of joy in our life, and I would never trade that for anything. We want to add to this family this fellowship family. We want it to grow. My prayer is that you do too. We need to understand that it is work. It will require sacrifice. It will require a huge investment. We have this skewed thought process on outreach, evangelism, and discipleship. In our minds sometimes, because 
We've done church a long time. We think of it as a program of the church, right? When we think of outreach, we think of this outreach program. Like today, we're going out and we're doing this, this uh, laundromat thing. And so we view that as outreach. That is the extent of outreach. That's a skewed view of what outreach is. Biblically, they never went as a group and went to the laundromat. That's, that's just not what they did. Not that it's a bad thing. It's a good thing. We should gather together and do the work together. But if we're not doing it personally, it doesn't matter that we're going to the laundromat. Outreach, evangelism, and discipleship is not the work of the church as a corporate entity. It is the work of the church as individual members within the church. Outreach is not a program of the corporate church, and it's not the church staff's jobs to manage our outreach efforts. Our view of reaching our people, our friends, and our family isn't just let me bring them to church so the preacher can preach and hopefully they'll accept Christ. That's not outreach. Outreach is you knowing the word and building relationships with people in order to share the gospel. It's a responsibility of the individual. If we want to see fruit, and dear God, I pray that that's what you hope for and that's what you pray for, it will require that we individually do our part to see a corporate impact. If we want to see a corporate impact of growth within our church, we want to see fruit, we want to see God use fellowship and grow it, then we as individuals are going to have to be intentional about growing our family. Several years ago, probably three, four years ago now, we met some friends at, uh, out treasure hunting. So Becca's got this really nerdy thing that she's into uh, where she goes out and treasure hunts. And I have nothing to say about it because she's made us a lot of money doing it. Um, and so that's her thing, go for it. And I've actually kind of gotten into it too because, like I said, there's money involved. And so, um, and so we've, we met some friends uh, through that. And, and through the process of just becoming their friend, right? We just hung out with them, invited them to come do escape rooms with us, invited them over to, to like just hang out and have game nights and that kind of thing. Over the process of a couple of years of just building a friendship relationship, we were able to share the gospel with them. They came to know Christ, and they got baptized a couple of years, and it's the Shaws. And now Stephanie is our, our new church administrative assistant. Like She works here now. And so God uses our intentional efforts of building relationships to grow his church, to bring fruit. That's how living out our God-given purpose of making and maturing disciples. We're not. This isn't, what this looks like is not that you go stand on the corner of 365 with a sign that turn or burn. That's not, that's not what I'm asking you to do, Okay. I get that's weird, okay, and probably completely unfruitful. What I'm asking you to do is be friendly. Be intentional about being friendly with lost people. For some of you, you have no lost friends, right? And, and when we talk to students, a lot of times, that's invite, you know, share the gospel with your friends. Well, all my friends are Christians. That's a problem. That's a problem. That, that means that you're not being intentional. Right? You need to find an avenue, an outlet, where you can meet lost people. For, for us on staff, that's always been difficult because we work with mostly Christians. I wonder about Julian sometimes, but the rest of us are all Christians, right? <laughs> I'm just playing. We work in an environment where everybody is believers, and so we have to be really intentional about building relationships. So for Julian, Julian loves golf. 
And he goes to the Babe and to these different golf courses, and he'll play around the golf with other single players, and he'll get an opportunity to, to talk to them about the gospel. And his really built relationships with people that way. For us, we like to treasure hunt, and we've built relationships with people that way. I know my dad's in the YMBL. That's an opportunity for him to go and meet lost people. Many of you have a workplace that's not a church, and you have lost people that you encounter on a daily basis. You have family members. You need to be intentional about building relationships with those people so that you can share the gospel with them. But it starts with just being their friend first. Right? And, and what that means is that it's going to require time, it's going to require energy, it's going to require effort, it's going to require money, financial sacrifice, it requires sacrifice. It's going to require you to care enough about lost people to give something up for it so that you can see God bring fruit out of that. So who is it that you know that, that's lost that you can invest in? Who are the names of people that you know that you can start inviting them over on a, on a weeknight? for dinner, so that you can get to know them and, and build that relationship with them. And like I said, it takes time. You don't invite them over in the first night and be like, if you were to die today, do you know where you go, right? Like, that's not, that's not the method. It's not what we're asking for. You just build a relationship, befriend them, and allow the Holy Spirit to guide and direct you through that conversation of when to bring it up. And more than likely, in most instance, instances, they're going to ask you, hey, what's so different about you? Right? Because radical transformation is attractive. Right? If they see that your marriage is rooted in Scripture and they're struggling in that, they're going to say, what is different about you? Right? If they see that your kids are respectful and the way that you parent is different than theirs, then they're going to want to know what's so different. We need to be intentional about living our lives the way that God has called us to live them, but we also need to be intentional about doing the work. We need to be willing because, like Jesus said, there's a lot of people out there that are lost, and we need some laborers. We need some people that are willing to sacrifice and do the work. And the last thing is, is it requires a dependency on God for the results. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 6, Paul says this, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his own reward according to his own labor, for we are God's co-workers. We don't have the power. We don't have the power to bear fruit as a church. That's not our responsibility. Our responsibility is just to do the work. Only God can give the growth. Only he can change someone's heart. But we're his co-workers. That's crazy, right? Why would God choose to use us to be his co-workers? Why did he choose this system of using these broken, degenerate people to, to grow his church? Look back at Acts 2 where we were at. It said the Lord added to their number. They had a part in it. That's huge. We get to be a part of what God is doing. It's a privilege. Do you get that? It's not that my, my Christian responsibility is to go out and share the gospel. It's what I got to do. No, you get to be part of what God is doing, and that is an amazing privilege that God has given us. This is part of the gospel. This is redemption. 
God took you out of your broken, sinful state. He saved you, gave you the promise of heaven. But even beyond that, he said, I'm going to redeem you for a new purpose of building my kingdom, and you get to be a part of that. That's, part, that's just as exciting as going to heaven, right? As believers, a lot of times we get really focused on the salvation part that gets us to heaven. Like, oh, I really want to go to heaven. That's really awesome. I'm excited about that. But what about the part that while we're here on earth, God said, I'm going to repurpose you, and I'm going to use you to build my kingdom. That's the gospel too. That's the good news too. And we should be excited about being allowed to be, about being part of what God is doing. We're not burdened with the task of changing man's heart, but we get to be part of planting and watering and God brings the fruit. When we have compassion for the lost, are willing to put in the work of planting seeds and watering and rely on God for the fruit, we'll begin to see God add to our number and our family will get bigger. That's my prayer for fellowship. Not growth for growth's sake. Not just so we got more people in the room and we can say, fellowship's got a thousand people going there. That'd be awesome. But how much more better would it be if we had a thousand disciples in our church? We'd have such a greater impact for the kingdom if we had people making disciples, not just adding to our attendance. I love our fellowship family. Just like I said on that second week, it's meant more to me over the years than I can even express. And I know that's true for many of you here this morning as well. Many of you, this church has meant a lot to you over the years. I want that for the people in our community. I see so many people hurting. I look out and I see this, these crowds of people in, in Mid-County who are like sheep without a shepherd. And I know what it's like to know Jesus and live in Christ-centered community. And I want that for them. My heart breaks for the fact that they don't know Jesus and they don't know what it looks like to live in Christ-centered community and I know that it could radically change their life and bring peace and fulfillment and joy like nothing else can. And I want that for them. I want that for my neighbors. I want that for the kids, the, the, the parents whose kids are on my kids' sports teams. I want that for the people that I see in our community. Is that what you want? Is that what you hope for? Is that what you pray for? I want us to be rooted in God's word. I want fellowship to mirror what we see here in Acts 2. That's what I want for us. I want us to be part of a growing family that God uses to grow his kingdom. A family that's rooted in God's word. A family that lives in Christ-centered community. A family that, that sees and is in awe of the miraculous, life-changing things that God is doing here. I want our church to be attractive and fruitful. And so, as we look into this, the temptation could be, man, I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Right? Maybe you're here this morning and, and, and God is convicting you right now that, you, this, that your life doesn't resemble what we're seeing here. Maybe you're not rooted in God's word like you should be. Maybe you're, you're just attending fellowship and haven't really like given yourself to the church and lived, living in Christ-centered community. 
Maybe you've stopped expecting for God to do the miraculous in people's lives. Maybe you're not living this attractive life that, that, that shows people that God has really changed you. Maybe you're not being intentional about going out and making disciples. The danger of hearing a message and, and studying a text that, like this that's really convicting is, is that we want to try to fix ourselves. Right? We, we want to fix, fix it. We, we, we see that and we think, I'm not doing that, so I have to do better. The call this morning is not for you to do better. The call this morning is for you to ask God to change your heart. That's where it starts. We've become a society that's really focused on behavior modification. Right? My dad was really good at behavior modification when I was a kid. He was a pro. It only took one time. Never did it again. But when he shut the door, I'd be like, oh, right? Because my heart was still in the wrong place. So this morning, we can leave this place like we do many times when we hear convicting sermons, and we can think, I'm going to change my behavior. By the time we get through our second plate at Luby's, we're, we're, we're the same person. Because we never dealt with the heart issue. This is always a heart issue. It's never a behavior issue. It's a heart issue. And so the call this morning is not to change your behavior. The call is to surrender to Jesus. If he is Lord, he is Lord and you surrender at all. God can change us when we surrender to him completely. You believe that? God can change you when you surrender to him completely. That's the call this morning. You can't say Jesus is Lord, but say, you know, you're Lord Jesus, but I'm going to keep this marriage thing to myself. No, he, he's not just going to take that little bit. You either give him all or nothing. You can't say, Jesus, you're Lord, but not over my finances. If he's Lord, he's Lord over all. You can't say, Jesus, you're Lord, but I'm going to, this is my time, this is my, this is my recreation time, this is my rest time, or this is how I choose to raise my, my kids. No, if, if he's Lord, then he's Lord. And so the call this morning is to surrender it all. And so as we wrap this series up this morning, I want to ask you some questions. And I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And the purpose between, but before closing, bowing our heads and closing our eyes is just so that you can kind of rule out the distractions around the room and have a moment of honest reflection between you and God this morning. I do believe this has been an awesome series over the past four weeks, and, and I really believe that God is using it to impact us as a church. But I think before it can impact us as a short church corporately, it has to impact us as a church individually. God has to change your heart individually before he can change us corporately. And so with head bow, heads bowed and eyes closed, I want to ask just a few thought-provoking questions this morning. And I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond to those questions just simply by raising your hand. And every head bowed and every eye closed, this is a moment between you and God. First question is this, have people seen and experienced the difference Jesus has made in your life. Would someone be surprised that your work to find out that you're a Christian? 
Have people seen and experienced the difference Jesus has made in your life? Are you different? Is your marriage different? Is the way that you raise your kids different? Is the way that you spend your time different? Is the way that you spend your money different? Do you look different than the rest of the world around us? If you say, you know what, Daniel, that's, if I'm honest, that's not me. I've, I'm, I've, I've, my life kind of looks like the rest of the world that's around me, but I want to surrender today completely. I want my life to look more like the transformation that's taking place in my life. If that's you, every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to just simply ask you to be honest this morning and slip your hand right where you're at. If you're willing to admit, my life does not resemble the life change that God has done inside of my life. There's hands all over the room. You can put your hands down. The answer, if the answer to that question is no, there's only two options. One, maybe you never really surrendered in the first place. Never, maybe you put your faith and trust in Christ in the first place. And then the, the, the call this morning to that would be that you would come down front and let us talk to you about what it's like to have a relationship with Christ. How do you come to know Christ? There'll be people standing in the front ready and willing to have that conversation with you. The other possibility is that you have surrendered, but your unconditional surrender has waned over the years. You started, you, you, you gave it all to him, but then you started pulling things back. And you started making excuses like, well, I'm just really busy and I got this stuff going on and it's hard for me to, to, to really put, put to, to really dedicate my life to this. Again, the answer this morning is not that you try to fix yourself. The answer is this morning is that you go before the feet of God and you say, please forgive me. I repent of this. Change my heart. Just like David after he had sinned with Bathsheba. Change my heart, oh God. Second question is this. Are you being intentional about the work of evangelism? Do you desire to plant? Do you have a heart and a burden for the loss? Are you doing the work? Are you willing to be a worker? You see the fields are ripe with harvest. Are you willing to put in the work? Are you willing to invest? Are you willing to sacrifice and be intentional about building relationships in order to share the gospel? And are you relying on God for the results? If you be honest this morning and say, you know what, Daniel, I'm not living that purpose that God has given me of being intentional about the work of evangelism. If you're willing to be honest about that this morning, then I want to just simply ask you to raise your hand right where you're at. Hands everywhere. God redeemed you for this. Your salvation was, was, was for this purpose so that God could use you to build his kingdom. You were redeemed for his glory. You were redeemed for this. And this is where you'll find the abundant life. We try to find the abundant life in so many places, but, but the abundant life is found in Jesus and in the work of, that, that Jesus has called us to do. It will cost you but I promise it's worth it. I promise it's worth it. I've never seen someone surrender to God's calling of making disciples that didn't find fulfillment in that calling. God has called everyone in this room to be disciple makers. If you know Jesus as your savior, you are a disciple and you should be a disciple maker. So the call this morning again is not that you work harder, but it is that you ask God to change your heart, give you a burden for the lost and burden your heart and, and be willing to sacrifice to see that kind of fruit. Thank you so much for listening today. And we always welcome you to join us at Fellowship Baptist Church in Nederland, Texas, where we gather, grow, give, and go.